Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are happy to welcome a new contributor to the Young Voices family. That is Kate Farmer. She's a sophomore at Washington University in St. Louis, as well as a contributor to Young Voices. And Kate, I would invite you, uh, since we're meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Great. Yeah. Hi, Brian, and happy Valentine's Day. Um, I am a college student right now at Washington University in St. Louis. I am a sophomore here. And I'm studying a variety of like pre-policy, pre-law stuff. Um, I'm really interested in writing on topics and policy, especially in education and mental health. And I'm really excited to be with Young Voices this year and to do more of that. Well, it looks like we have a very interesting topic to explore today. Uh, the title of your article is It's Time for Schools to Teach Social Media Literacy. And I got to tell you, Kate, I have had long conversations with my wife about our teenage daughter and and social media. She's 14 years old, and we want to think that it's a positive influence, but I have a hunch that uh, there is more to social media than just fun and games. Yes, well, your hunch would be be correct, and the science agrees with you. Um, And that's really what the core of this article is about, is that we've known for a really long time that social media has adverse effects on all users, but especially on youth and adolescents, like especially students around the age of your daughter, you know, ages 10 and up. Uh, And increasingly, youth are starting to use social media at younger and younger ages. About half of kids aged 10 to 12 are on social media now. But, you know, the science and our intuitions are correct in showing us that social media is no place for kids. Um, We're also increasingly seeing, and that's one of the things I hit on in my article, is that there are major major cognitive effects that can come to kids from using social media beyond simple behavioral changes. And now, um, a study from JAMA Pediatrics just a month ago shows us that it was a three-year longitudinal study of kids in middle school, sixth and seventh grade, and they showed that kids who checked social media accounts frequently throughout the day were shown to develop increased neural sensitivity in their brains that makes them more susceptible to social consequences throughout their lifetimes. And so wow. we have the, the current examples right now of you know, social media addictive behaviors. You know, kids, you know, the age of your daughter around age 14 are averaging nine hours of social media use a day, but they're only gonna become more susceptible to screen usage and addiction as their brains develop, given they've been exposed to this at a young age. So it's a, it's a pretty urgent issue. We, we really can't be and are you know, more bullish on this than we are. I think I started to suspect that there might be something to the idea that, hey, maybe this isn't the healthiest thing. When I learned that the, the greatest threat of punishment that a parent can can issue to, to a child at this point <laughs> is if, if you don't get in line, I'm going to take away your phone. Holy cow, they will melt down right there on the spot. But it's I, I think it's that addiction side that, that you're addressing there. Talk to me about the cognitive difficulties that arise from from overusing or, or for that matter, just using social media starting at a young age. How does it hinder the development of a healthy mind? Yeah, and so it's, it's really helpful to think of social media as a drug. Um, I mentioned my article, that famous quote from Rep Mike Gallagher of, you know, digital fentanyl, but wow. you know, the seriousness is deserved here. Um, social media has a drug-like effect. And that's one of the things I want to teach kids and that kids need to be made aware of is how social media capitalizes on their eyeballs, their clicks, and even their vulnerabilities. Um, you know, when you open a social media app, take Instagram, for example, you open up the app and there's a slew of posts, notifications, likes, there's reels, 
all of these miniature signals is triggering a point in your brain. It's giving you a small dopamine rush that's triggering your brain's pleasure center. It's going to give you that feedback loop of desiring more and more of that, you know, that stimulant. And that's just like with a real physical drug, you're going to keep craving more and more and more of that stimulant. And so that's why, you know, for young kids, their, their screen time usage hours are sort of an upward sloping graph. You know, they start with an hour, two or three, and it builds up to nine or more. And by the time kids are, you know, 15 to 17, they report, half of kids that age report that they use social media almost constantly. It's truly a drug-like effect. And kids need to be made aware of that. I, I talk a lot in my article about, you know, past social education campaigns, like say no to drugs, stand up to bullying. Um, and kids need to be made aware, just like with drugs and bullying, of the vices that they're being exposed to that they might not recognize. Sort of the unplug and unwind generation, I think, is the vocabulary I use. I know the, the article that you wrote refers to um, schools teaching social media literacy. It sounds like that's a responsibility well, that would also fall within uh, a parent's stewardship. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on parents leading out? I mean, I wouldn't object to the schools helping them, but it seems like parents ought to be on the forefront of this. Exactly. And parents have been leading the move for the past you know, many years. You brought up yourself the whole... You know, if you mess up, I'm taking away your phone. I That happened to me when I was in middle school and high school. It's It's been a leading sort of movement in this field for a long time. But we can't expect parents to take on this huge issue themselves. And parents are you know, fighting against a power that's a lot bigger than them. And it comes down to the way that social media works. You probably remember hearing when you were younger and now that, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Yep. Social media is not a free lunch. Social media giants make their money off of your eyeballs and your clicks, and they're incentivized to do whatever they can to prolong your stay on the app. So they're going to put a lot of powerful factors on there to draw you onto these devices and apps. And if one company gets shut down, another is going to pop up and try to do the same thing. That's the market. And parents are fighting against a force that's a lot bigger than them. These are really compelling, addictive you know, devices and addictive apps and it's a lot to ask for a parent to try and do that single-handedly and, and schools can help take some of the burden off, but no, it's definitely going to stay a team effort. I think it wasn't that long ago, just a few years ago, uh, Facebook actually admitted that they had engaged in um, research to see whether they could manipulate people's behavior, make them feel more happy, more sad through just the, the things that showed up in their feed. And as I recall, the answer was absolutely they can. I wish more people absolutely. understood that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of the uniquely awful design or not even design, but the way that our market economy works in so many wonderful ways, it unfortunately also works with social media. And so say Facebook, somehow we pass this unprecedented law, Facebook just disappears tomorrow. But other social media companies are going to, you know, take up that multi-million billion dollar industry of, you know, youth usage and give it back to them. And so Cutting down one site, investigating one site can only do but so much because there's so much money to be made here that we can't expect real change to keep kids off social media. We can't expect that to come anytime soon. We rather need to sort of prepare kids for the road because it's coming. 
you know, I, I, I see the phrase unplug and unwind. And, and I have to admit, it's not just kids that are at risk of this. Even as an adult, mm-hmm. I find that there are times when I start to feel overwhelmed. And, and it's because the first thing I do when I get up in the morning, I whoop, grab my phone, put on my glasses, and I'm wondering, what's been happening? I, do, do I get that dopamine hit or not? And I find when I unplug and I step away from my screens for even a day or so, things start to look and feel much more normal. So if it's having that impact on me, I can only imagine what this is doing, you know, to to younger minds, more impressionable minds. Goodness, yes. And that's one of the things I think that a curriculum in schools and, and whatever form it comes, there's a lot of forms that it could, you know, materialize in. But equipping kids with some of those skills, like what you've talked about here, I mentioned a couple in my article that are, you know, helpful for different people. And there's certainly no one size fits all. Um, But, you know, like what you're saying, a social media cleanse can be really helpful to break down some of that digital noise and to sort of separate your brain from that, you know, accustomed dopamine hit that it craves like in the morning or at school or, you know, breaking up that attention span. So there's social media cleanses. You can even, this one's not as well known, but it worked really well for me to put your phone on a black and white setting. And Mm. a lot of the addictive power of your phone and it's, you know, the social media on there comes out of the colors and the visual stimulants. And so putting your phone in black and white allows you to keep using those apps. You don't have to go cold turkey, but it really cuts down on their addictive power. Um, There's a lot of different techniques out there that work for people. And, you know, equipping kids with this as young as we can, can only help. You know, I, I hate to draw this comparison, but what you are saying and the way you're describing how social media affects the mind and in fact reprograms it, it sounds a lot like what I have heard people say regarding porn addiction. Um, it, it, again, the unrealistic expectations are created. You're seeing everybody else's life. It's so perfect on social media. Um, you know, the dopamine, the pleasure center, uh, you know, is activated each time that you access it, the colors and so forth. Uh, is, is there a parallel that can be drawn between those types of addiction or are they actually part and parcel of the same thing? Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison to make. And I mean, I'd say certainly it can be. Um, But social media is a a bit of a bigger monster in a sense in that it's not regulable in the same way. And we can't expect changes to come out in that same way. Like there's been a lot of talk of the porn industry and, you know, regulating that. But social media is here to stay. And it has a uniquely addictive power that you get in your daily life. Like when a girl comes home from middle school after that sensory overload that is all these relationships and people around her, it follows her home on her phone. Whereas at least porn is not something that's around you all day. Very true, very true. Kate Farmer is our guest. Kate, where can people find your work? Where can they follow you on social media? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Kate S. Farmer, and you can also follow me on LinkedIn to see some more of what I'm writing. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome April Liu to the show. This is her first appearance on Moving Forward with Young Voices. And April, I understand that uh, you are a recent graduate from Mount Holyoke College, and you're also uh, working with uh, Libertas Institute as a research associate. Um, Go ahead and toot your horn a little bit here. Tell us about yourself, uh, who you are, and what you do. Okay, thank you, Brian. It's so great to be here. Um, Well, I mean, I don't really have much to add. Uh, Viewers might 
find it interesting that I'm not from America. I'm actually from Canada. So the article that we're going to be talking about is a little outside of my comfort zone as I'm not super familiar with um, American lawmaking or um, American government in general. Uh, my usual research specialization is uh, within privacy, like data privacy, anything AI related, anything big tech related, I'm your person. So um, I'm really excited to talk FTC though. Um, yeah. Okay. And your article published in townhall.com is about how non-compete, the non-compete ban that has been recently proposed by the Federal Trade Commission is yet another sign of FTC mission creep. Now, I know no federal agency ever does anything except that they're considering, hey, we're doing you a favor by what we would like to do here. Um, let's talk about some of the reasons why they would like to ban non-compete clauses. And then we'll talk about who this would affect and why it may not be the best idea. Mm hmm. Well, um, I would assume they want to ban non-competes clauses because, you know, like public choice theory says that every entity is self-interested. And of course, it's within any, you know, government agency, uh, their self-interest to want to expand power in any way possible. Um, but on the broader scale, I they do say that it would um, impact citizens in a good way. Uh, it would raise wages, they said. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where they get this data from as they don't really post it anywhere. Uh, but it's it's really interesting. Talk to me about how many workers potentially could be affected by this because this is a much higher number than, than I thought it would be. Yes, yes. So I wrote in my article that it has the potential to impact 30 million U.S. workers. I, I believe that's one in five of wow. American workers. Yeah, because uh, they do say that one in five American workers are restricted by non-competes agreements. Now, so on the surface, they're saying, well, you know, non-competes clauses, and I've worked in radio for many years, and these are kind of a standard thing, particularly when you get into a larger market where, you know, um, salaries are multiple six-figure salaries, sometimes seven-figure salaries. They don't want you mm -hmm. being wooed away by a few dollars more across town and simply going to work for the competition and taking your audience with you. So I, I get why they mm -hmm. ask people, please sign this no-compete clause, and then we'll pay you, you know, this, this exorbitant amount of money. But there are a lot of other mm -hmm. industries that this extends to. Um, I, I'm I'm curious, how is it supposed to raise wages? Because uh, I'm I'm trying to draw that connection and I'm coming up short. Uh, the FTC says it has potential to raise wages, but how would that work? Brian, I have to be honest with you. I have no idea because um, I did, you know, try and do some digging and see if the FTC had anything to say, like anything, any way of explaining how this would work, but. Um, as usual, given that uh, they seem to have lack transparency, uh, I couldn't find anything. Wow. So it's pretty much a matter of, look, trust us. <laughs> Just if we say it'll do it, yeah. it'll do it. But we're talking, you know, they're saying there's like $300 billion worth of, of uh, you know, increased wages. And that's a, that's a pretty big promise. But there's another mm -hmm. side to that coin, and that is, okay, so... Ostensibly, this is going to help people, you know, with employment opportunities, but there's always unforeseen consequences. It's like Frederick Bastiat's, that which is seen, that which is unseen. What are some of the unintended mm -hmm. consequences that don't seem to be quite as much in the spotlight that could, could happen as a result of a ban on non-compete clauses? 
Um, well, I would say the major thing would be that uh, if this non-compete ban actually goes through, that would kind of be a warning sign that the FTC is sort of, you know, uh, they've expanded their power so much that they're, they're virtually like unrestricted at this point. Um, they were not created as a rulemaking body. Uh, so if they were actually able to go through with this, that would mean that they, they're actually just going directly against what they were originally intended to do. And that's no small thing. I mean, mission creep mm-hmm. is, is kind of part of government. But in this case, when you have a non-rulemaking entity expanding itself to, to not only a rulemaking entity, but I'm assuming that this means that those rules would, would carry the force of law for businesses throughout the country. Yes, yes. And they they were only supposed to have been created to enforce rules, not make rules. Um, but as I write in my article, you know, Lena Khan's been going around saying so many different things about how they're going to use like all the tools in their toolbox. Uh, we're going to expand. We're going to like uh, take off all these decades of self-imposed red tape. I remember that's one quote that I believe uh, her colleague, Commissioner Slaughter, mentioned. Um, Yeah, and that's the basic premise of what they're trying to do here with the non-competes ban. And now, just a couple of weeks ago, we had another Young Voices contributor um, talking a little bit about non-compete clauses. And he actually gave, I thought, a very solid defense of why those non-compete clauses actually are incentive to some employers to hire certain people. Because if you hire someone and you put hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars into tools and training for that person, you know, you're putting a pretty significant investment in them. And that's incentive for them to, to stick around and not just uh, basically take off and go set up shop on their own after you've put all that money into helping them become, you know, a very valuable and, and profitable worker. And I have to admit mm-hmm. that that made a great deal of sense to me. Now, you know, if I if I was let go from a radio station and had a no compete clause and I was like, OK, I got to hang my headphones up for the next six months or two years or however long it stipulates, that would uh, that would seem like a very unfair thing. However, a lot of businesses aren't like radio meaning, you know, you can just plug mm-hmm. somebody else in to get somebody trained and schooled and, and equipped and, and ready to go. Sometimes it takes a very significant investment. And I'd, I would see that non-compete clause being something that would protect them. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about. You know, Brian, oh, sorry. You know, Brian, that does sound um, pretty convincing. Um, I'm I'm myself am relatively neutral on non-competes. I can definitely see why. Uh, they would be good in some instances, bad in some other instances. But the main thing, the main point here is that uh, regardless of um, the effectiveness of non-competes, the FTC, it's not within their um, authority to be regulating this. Um, and they're going to be regulating such a huge portion of the economy. And uh, that's like no joke. Uh They may also run into issues such as the major questions doctrine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I'm not. um, Okay, so to help you and like the viewers out, um, basically the major questions doctrine holds that uh, essentially courts can't defer to agencies um, that concern questions of vast economic or political significance. So essentially here at the FTC may run into this issue, but... uh, if they do end up going through with this, I guess 
the major questions doctrine is just like no longer relevant. And that's very concerning. Yeah. And I, I will agree with you, regardless of whether these non-competes are a good idea or not. The thought of agencies essentially being able to slip off their leash and grow as big as they would like to grow, that's that's a much bigger problem and, and probably sets the stage for, for other problems we have yet to, to recognize down the road. Are, is mm-hmm. there anyone pushing back against this proposed F- FTC rule? Oh, I believe there are quite a few um, IP intellectual property advocates who are concerned with this. Um, for obvious reasons, it may, uh, you know, violate certain trade secrets, violate certain uh, IP protections. Uh, yeah. Okay, again, we are talking with April Liu. She is a Young Voices contributor and also working at the Libertas Institute as a research associate. Um, April, where can people follow you on social media? Um, people can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find if you just Google April Liu at Libertas Institute. Thank you so much. Great to visit with you today. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome back to the program Sarah Montalbano. She is the Education Policy Analyst at Alaska Policy Forum and Northwest Regional Leader with Young Voices. And Sarah, you're a familiar voice on this program. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Looks like we've got a pretty uh, pretty weighty topic here, and I'm, I'm really excited to get your take on this. Uh, this is uh, from the Wall Street Journal, and uh, your title is Let Alaska Develop Its Natural Resources. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I was living in Utah when President Bill Clinton, back in 1996, designated the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and put off limits one of the biggest, richest seams of coal in the world, and I mean clean burning, low sulfur coal, and uh, it, it limited a natural resource that could have provided energy and could have provided resources. And now I'm reading about uh, Alaska, likewise facing a lot of natural resources being placed off limits. Tell me about what's happened there. Yeah, there's been a flurry of activity from the Biden administration recently. Um, the main topic of the piece is the Tongass National Forest. It is the largest remaining temperate rainforest in the world. Um, there's actually no endangered species, but a lot of environmentalists think that there are uh, in this forest. And um, as of January 27th, the Biden administration officially re-restricted logging and road building through reinstatement of the 2001 roadless rule. Alaska has petitioned many, many times uh, to get a state-based exemption or a Tongass-based specific exemption to these rules. Um, and in 2020, the Trump administration finally got got one. Um, and, and all of this flip-flop back and forth uh, means that there is no certainty for investors um, who might have wanted to capitalize on the small uh, portion of the forest that was allowed uh, to opened up to logging through this rule. So that's the crux of my piece is that this is another example, and Alaska is really good for this, but in Utah too, um, about how 
the federal government does its best to make investments really uncertain in these kind of environmentally sensitive areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I still feel just a little bit chapped at the idea that uh, people along the Potomac, uh, many of whom are politically motivated, are making decisions that deeply affect people far, far away from them with, without what I would consider a real understanding of what's at stake there. Talk to me about the 2001 um, rule, the roadless rule. How did that come to be? What was the rationale behind it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. The roadless rule um, came about in the Tongass. Um, the, it covers nationwide, so it covers 58 million acres of U.S. Forest Service lands, and that's about a third of America's national forests, about half, more than half of the Tongass's acreage. Um, and a lot of this are in the 12 western states because we just have so much federal land. Um, the roadless rule came about largely because of some environmental concerns about pristine uh, preserving this beauty. And in the Tongass in particular, the there was already um, a lot of regulations starting to be prom promulgated. Um, in the 90s, uh, the Forest Service canceled or modified most of the, their contracts to provide timber to saw sawmills. Um, so that really killed the industry well before the roadless rule uh, came into effect. Wow. You know, I know that at some level there's the idea of, well, we have to do this because if we didn't, you know, people would be motivated by money and with dollar signs in their eyes, they'd go in there and they'd, you know, they'd level the place. They, they'd strip it to the bare ground. Explain to me why it's in the interest of the people who actually live, you know, in and around the, uh, the Tongass National Forest not to do so. Yeah, there's about 70,000 people living in the Tongass National Forest's boundaries. Um, only about 400 jobs are currently in the timber industry in Southeast Alaska. Um, I the, the crux of my point here is that opening up this acreage would be good for education and environmental and scientific research uh, as part of it. And then it, all of this is covered so well by other forest regulations. The U.S. Forest Service has a plan that it does not deviate from. It reviews this plan every few years. It didn't make any changes. I think the most recent for the Tongass was 2016. Um, so they're, they're, it is so well covered by these other regulations. These projects are covered by the National Environmental Protection Act, where you have to file environmental impact statements that can take five years on average, up to a decade if you're talking about controversial Alaskan projects. Um, so it, it really, the, the roadless rule ends up being more endless red tape for projects that are trying to uh, be done in, in the Tongass. Um, and that all of these issues, it's mostly the U.S. Forest Service that's going and doing these logging uh, endeavors. So it ends up just being more red tape for their agency to deal with as well. You know, I, I'm curious. Um, I, obviously, there's an environmental angle to why we just can't allow people to go in there and, and do this. And that's why they have these environmental impact statements and so forth. But why does it take so long? I mean, a decade? How could they not assess what needs to be assessed in a much shorter time frame? Or is that just the nature of the bureaucracy? I think it ends up being the nature of the bureaucracy here. Um, the decade is from the Pebble Mine, which just recently got a final determination from the Environmental Protection Agency using a rather um, obscure portion of the Clean Water Act 
to shut that down. That has been, I, I remember in my childhood, all these bumper stickers say no to Pebble. Um, and, and just this, this, um, controversy, uh, the Willow project is oil was found, uh, in 2017 on the site in the Biden administration, just, uh, recommended a scaled down version of it. And so these environmental impact statements have been getting longer and, um, it, the process takes longer. It takes a lot of pre-approval time and then some final determination time afterwards. So five years is actually kind of a conservative estimate. Um, and then we're talking about just oodles, more paperwork. It's just been increasing, increasing. And I, I would have to find the link uh, that I, I referenced for this. Um, but it's the pages are, you know, up into the thousands of pages now. Um, and that's for a standard project, not the super controversial ones. And then the last thing I will note is that these things are often really held up in litigation from national environmental groups. Um, they they come in and say, we're an out-of-state interest. Uh, we're interested in stopping whatever project's happening in Alaska or whatever state. Um, and then they really hold up the process through litigation. Wow. That's got to be so frustrating to the people who could actually be working, benefiting, creating value for mm -hmm. other people. And and OK, but but it's I want people to understand you're not calling for let's just throw all environmental regulations out. What you're calling for is let's be smarter about how we apply them. Absolutely. The criticism I've mostly received uh, has been, wow, you're calling for approval of all of these really controversial projects. And I was very careful not to in this piece because the environmental merits may differ. It just shouldn't take five or 10 years to figure it out. Um, there, we can do this with a lot less paperwork and a lot faster and give investors the certainty they need in order to pursue these projects. Absolutely. Um, so where does the battle go from here? I mean, is is there is it being fought at the state level, or is this something that uh, is solely in the hands of Washington D.C. and Alaska's hands are tied? Alaska, pretty much always, depending on administration, um, Alaska's administrations usually file protests. I believe they did so on the Pebble Mine, um, the Tongass Rule. I don't know if they've struck back against that. That was a long time coming. Biden announced a revisitation of the rule within a few hours of inauguration. Uh, so I think that was expected. But it, it's really, really difficult for Alaskans who live and work in the state in Alaska that needs more than tourism res revenue in order to survive as a state. Well, and, you know, for people who haven't been there, the the size and vastness of the state and the amount of natural resources that are available there, it's it's not like, oh, we'd use it all up in a year, making money, you know. I mean, there, it can be done, I'm sure, and it can be done wisely. But if, if people have never flown over Alaska, it's a massive state and there's so much that's available there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Alaskans deserve the chance to develop these resources safely, and they take great pride in doing so. So the other the alternative then is, you know, basically they're, they're being told, look, you can live in a wildlife preserve <laughs> that we call Alaska. Mm -hmm. But uh, really, as a state, you don't really get to develop things that would be helpful to your economy. And um, gosh, there's room, there's resources. I'll, I'll tell the truth, man, if I was, if I was a younger man, I would be finding a way to, to move to Alaska just because it's such an amazing place. 
Yeah. It's beautiful, but that doesn't mean every square footage, every square foot needs to be protected. Here, here. Again, we are visiting with Sarah Montalbano. She's the Education Policy Analyst at Alaska Policy Forum and also the Northwest Regional Leader with Young Voices. Sarah, for people who would like to follow you on social media or would like to follow your writings, where can they find you? Uh, You should go to Twitter. I am at Sarah Montalbano and the O is a zero. Very good. Great to visit with you again. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed it greatly. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today, and we are happy to welcome a new contributor. His name is Luke Hogg. He's the Director of Outreach, uh, Director of Outreach at Lincoln Network. And uh, Luke, I'd love it if you would just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure. Well, uh, I'm a kid born and raised in West Texas and came out to Washington, D.C., and now I work for the Lincoln Network, which is a a think tank out here that uh, focuses on tech and innovation policy and kind of the intersection uh, between technology and and what our government does with the public policies. Well, I'm looking at an article that was uh, published in the Deseret News. Tech legislation presents opportunity for Republican unity. And I have to admit, I really have not heard much about the TEAM Act. What can you tell me about uh, this legislation and who's behind it? Sure. Well, the TEAM Act is a piece of legislation that's coming from Senator Mike Lee out of Utah, which makes sense why uh, we wanted to publish this in Deseret and get people out there talking about it. Um, And basically, there's been a lot of conversation recently or in recent years about uh, how to deal with the tech behemoths, the really big tech companies. Um, And the primary way that this has been approached is from antitrust law. Um, So what we saw last year was there was a big bipartisan push uh, behind a few different pieces of legislation that were um, pretty flawed, in my opinion, and apparently in the opinion of Congress, because they didn't get passed. Um, And so what Senator Mike Lee has done uh, with him and his staff is they've gone and looked at uh, this from a much bigger perspective, and, and they put together the TEAM Act. So TEAM stands for Tougher Enforcement Against Monopolies. Um, and essentially, it's legislation that's aimed at trying to solve and plug some of the holes in our antitrust regime um, to kind of get at some of this anti-competitive behavior that we're seeing. So I have to ask you this, Luke, how good of an idea is it to get government involved in issues such as this one? I mean, I, I'm open to whatever positives, but I, it seems like I could see some drawbacks, too, of, of making government the arbiter of uh, how big is too big. Sure. And I think that's the that's the really big question that conservatives have to struggle with when we're talking about um, antitrust law specifically. Um, but quite frankly, Brian, the fact of the matter is the government is already involved in these factors. Um, what we've seen, in fact, if you go and look at what's happened over the past year or so, the Federal Trade Commission uh, under Chair Lena Khan has been really, really aggressive uh, at going after some of these big tech companies and um, really throwing mud at the wall and trying to see what sticks. Um, And some of these lawsuits have succeeded, some of them haven't. Um, But really the problem here is that antitrust law has been uh, established through case law and just kind of built up over a a long period of time. 
Um, and we really haven't revisited what these laws should do and how they should operate since the 1930s. Um, and so that's the kind of the point of the TEAM Act and what Senator Mike Lee is trying to do is saying, well, this is a reality. This is something that the government does. Um, but we haven't taken a good hard look at how it, how the government does it in a very long time. So let's you know go in and try and um, rewrite some of these rules and make it uh, fit more to the modern era. In your commentary in the Deseret News, you walk us through the three primary components of the TEAM Act. Would you mind just breaking those out for us and explaining uh, you know, how they would help to, to solve some of the issues that we face with, with big tech? Sure. So the, the three big components is first, um, it includes what's called the One Agency Act. And this is a separate piece of legislation that Senator Lee has been working on for a long time. So essentially, um, the, at the federal level, antitrust is split between two agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice. Um, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why that is. It's just kind of a relic of the past. Um, and so the One Agency Act would essentially um, take a lot of that power away from the FTC and give it to the DOJ. Um, you know, putting all of antitrust into one agency, hence one agency act. Um, the second big component of this is that it actually creates uh, what's called a rebuttable presumption against um, mergers and acquisitions that would go above 33% of market share. Um, and that's a whole lot of jargon to basically say that if you, if a, two companies are merging and they're going to take a, a large control of a particular market, that um, the Federal Trade Commission goes ahead and assumes that this is going to be an anti-competitive merger. Um, but the bright side of that is that the companies can come in and rebut that presumption and they can prove to the, the, the Federal Trade Commission um, and the Department of Justice that this is an in fact, um, a good thing, a good merger, something that we should like and want, uh, and that will help consumers. Um, and then finally, this is the most important component, is that it actually codifies what's called the consumer welfare standard. And this is something that's existed in case law for a very long time. Um, and it essentially says that when federal agencies, when regulators are looking at mergers and acquisitions by companies, um, that what they are supposed to look at to determine whether it is anti-competitive or not is the impact on consumers. Um, so if I can, this is it's, it's weird and needs a little bit of unpacking. So um, part of the problem of what is going on now is that there's an attempt to reframe antitrust law and talk about competition in an entirely new way. Uh, and they're talking about how uh, mergers and acquisitions might impact um, labor markets how they might impact uh, the companies themselves. Um, but fundamentally, the way that antitrust law is established in the United States um, is a positive look, as a positive view, because it really is talking about how this is going to impact consumers. Is it going to uh, artificially raise prices? Is it going to decrease the amount of choice in the market for consumers? Um, and so this codifies that and ensures that, you know, as we go forward, that that's the only thing that we're looking at is how these things impact consumers. Interesting. Now, you mentioned in your article, this is also a chance for Republicans to actually have some unity. And uh, let's talk a little bit about how, how that would, would help them uh, now that they control the, the House of Representatives. Sure. Well, Brian, I'm sure you saw that 
Um, the start of the year was a little bit hectic for uh, the Republicans in the House of Representatives. It took us uh, a, quite a while to elect a Speaker of the House. Um, and it really showed uh, this disunity that has been boiling up for a long time uh, among Republicans specifically. Um, so many of your viewers may remember the Tea Party movement back in 2009 and kind of this this push um, against leadership and against the establishment and says, no, um, you know, we, the backbencher members, we, the, uh, the people, right, um, really want to say in how legislation happens and how Congress operates. Um, and over time, so in 2009, that was kind of the movement. And that movement is kind of making a comeback. And I think that's what we saw um you know, early this year with the speakership race. So um, there's really a bunch of disunity among Republicans for, for various reasons. Um, a lot of broken promises and, and um, talking out of both sides of their mouth. Um, but the important thing here is that uh, we really should be looking for opportunities to to unite and to find unity. And um, talking about antitrust, talking about big tech, this is one area where there's not only unity, everyone agrees about the problem, right? Um, I think everyone on both the right and the left generally agrees that there are issues with what some of these companies are doing. Um, and what we have tended to disagree on is the solution to that problem. That's what we saw last year with um, the American Innovation Choice Online Act and a a few other pieces of legislation that were pushed by Sen Senator Amy Klobuchar. Um, they were just flawed pieces of legislation. They were just badly written um, and had would have had massive impact, uh, outsized impact on these companies, and were very punitive as well. Um, and so the TEAM Act specifically is an area where Republicans can come and unite not only behind a problem, but hopefully can unite behind a good solution. And, you know, there's all this is how democracy works. We can debate and we can talk about potential ways to make this bill better. But it's a fantastic framework from which we can unite and start to, to move forward and actually do some positive legislating in these two years. It sounds like there's quite a balance that has to be struck here. Um, I don't think anybody would argue against uh, the fact that uh, there are some business practices that have made uh, big tech pretty untrustworthy. I mean, there there's a lot of things that are going on that I, I think uh, need to be addressed. But at the same time, when you invite government in and say, would you please fix this, no matter how good the intentions, you, you could also see, um, you know, unintentional things, stifling of innovation, you know, micromanagement uh, through regulatory, you know, agencies and so forth. So I, I hope that there are there are cool minds that can can make that uh, can can strike that balance and and not to devolve into you know some partisan advantage. Well, certainly, I think you know we one hundred percent agree on that, and and this is where uh, you kind of get into the issue of that something it, it seems like something is in the water, right? Something is in the air. Something is going to happen. Um, so this is one of those scenarios where it's trying to make sure that the the rules are crafted in in the best way possible to minimize. Uh, those sorts of impacts of government interference in, in free companies and in free markets. Um, and I think that's where you see the TEAM Act as, as a really positive push forward. It's something that, that applies equally to all companies, right? So the other proposals were targeted at one or two big companies um, who shall remain nameless uh, <laughs> and was really, was really targeted at punishing those companies for perceived wrongdoings. Um, whereas Senator Mike Lee has really taken this idea um, and, and, you know, 
taken it out to um, a higher level and said, well, this is a problem, right? And I think everyone has talked about this being a problem. But perhaps we can look at this uh, from a higher level and make rules that apply to everyone equally. Again, we are talking with Luke Hogg. He is the director of, De- director of outreach at the Lincoln Network and a Young Voices contributor. Luke, where can people find you on social media? You can follow me on Twitter at, at, at L-E-H-O-G-G. You can also find Lincoln Network there, too, at Join Lincoln.